Imagine what it'd be like if we were really curious about each other. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Relational Spirituality, the weekly podcast of LargerStory.com, the podcast that sees all relationships as spiritual and all spiritual formation as relational. Now, here's your host for this week, Carlene Cannon. Hello, Larger Story family. Welcome to the Relational Spirituality Podcast, where we discuss what it means first to belong to God, and from that position to become all that He created you to be, so that you can confidently be known in a listening community of others who are also belonging and becoming. Thank you so much for listening. Today, I'm so grateful and excited that my daughter, Ivy Hill, is joining me for a conversation about what it means to be relationally formed and what that's been like for her growing up in our family and in a variety of different church settings. As you know, we are beginning our focus on Larry's book, Real Church. Does it exist and can I find it? And so we're going to be talking a little bit today about what our experiences at church have been as a family, what Ivy's experiences have been since she's gone off to college, and, and what we're looking for in church. But first, let me tell you a little bit about Ivy. She's the oldest of our four children. She's 25. She's married to Jimmy, which means we now have five children. And she lives in Memphis, Tennessee, where she teaches ninth grade physical science and biology at Kingsbury High School. She graduated from Duke University in 2020 and got married soon thereafter. So her experience of the COVID years were all wrapped up in the loss of from normal experiences of major life events like graduation and weddings. So she's got a lot to, to talk about in those from those experiences. Uh, while she lived in our home, she also had the privilege or burden of participating in a community group of between 20 to 80 people at any given time over the course of about 10 years that met in our home every week. And Ivy played a major role in this. She um, helped us with the kids who were younger than her, and she was kind of the pesty little sister to the kids who were older than her. Of course, she interacted with adults all the time, even, and this just still uh, blows my mind. She even allowed a group of adults to meet in her bedroom when she was a teenager um, to have their conversations every week, <laughs> uh, which I just found um, very generous for a teenager. Um, however, this wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. Um, Ivy was particularly known in our family for her formidable resistance to conversation. <laughs> when she was 13, 14, 15, those years, um, she would sit on the stairs while her dad and I talked to her and say nothing for hours um, so I am particularly grateful that we now, some years later, are on a podcast having a conversation. It's proof that, uh, that God is, is active and accomplishes miracles. <laughs> but that's not the end of the story. I, uh, went on to, in her college years, um, gather a group of 20 or more, college students, um, and really established a deep, close-knit, challenging community there on um, their four years while they were in university. And they continue to, to interact at that deep level, um, even now that they're spread all over the country. So she has a lot that she can share with us about what it means to live in community. Um, so, I mean, thank you so much for being willing to come and talk to me, um, yeah. given by a little bit of what I shared about where we started, I'm very grateful and very grateful for all that God has done to get us to this place. I never thought 10 years ago that we'd be on a podcast <laughs> having a conversation. So is there anything you'd like to add? Did I forget anything? Or maybe you'd like to share your side of the story? <laughs> Well, I was just going to say, I didn't know I had an option to not have adults meet in my room. So <laughs> wasn't really framed to me that way. So, well, 
always thought she had an option. <laughs> or at least I thought she had the option of protesting. Um, and you never mm. did. So I really appreciated that. <laughs> well, let me start by asking you kind of what that was like for you growing up in our house where not only um, your dad and I were asking you questions and engaging in deep conversation, but other people were here and um, there was always that kind of risky uh probing conversation that was happening around you and and moving and people moving toward you in a curious way what was it like for you yeah I mean I think for me I guess it's weird because it all started I feel like when dad and you started kind of getting into all that material and stuff was right around when I was like 12 13 and so I guess I did know something different, but I think I didn't really also have a concept of anything other than that. Yeah. So to me, it felt kind of normal-ish. Yeah. Um, maybe not for you and dad to ask me questions, but for other adults to ask me questions. I think I think I was someone who always was quick to speak. And, you know, in class, I was always the one who was going to talk if no one else was going to. And I was the one leading conversation. So I think there was part of me as a 12, 13, 14 year old who was grateful that adults were pursuing me and like wanting to know what I thought. And like, I guess just communicating to me that my feelings were important and mm -hmm. like my desires and all of those things were important. Like as someone who teaches 13 and 14 year olds now, I think a lot of kids at that age just they're kind of just told like shut up be quiet do what you're supposed to do do your work yeah. and no one really asks them why are you acting that way why are you doing these things and so i think if i look back on it now especially as an educator who works with 13 and 14 year olds like all the time i think that it was really valuable for me to have so many adults in my life who were pursuing my heart and getting underneath my bad behavior or in my case most of the time it was good behavior and still probing underneath that because I think it would have been really easy for me to get to be a 20-year-old and think, oh, I don't I don't struggle with anything because yeah. all my behavior is good. Right. And so I think I think for me being engaged like that at such a young age really helped me in my understanding of who I was, but also in the way I related to others and not just seeing people as either, oh, well behaved or poorly behaved mm -hmm. people. So Yeah. Yeah, I really liked what you were, were you talking about there, where you chose early on that the path to life, if you will, was to be good, be smart, get it right, you know, cooperate, please the adults in your life. And so it would have been probably a common experience for someone who chose that path to almost be overlooked because you know, the squeaky yeah. wheel gets the grace and there's no reason to, you know, Ivy's doing fine on her own. We don't need to really get underneath what's going on. And um, and so then there, that's almost a form of neglect, you know. And also, I think it's, and you sort of alluded to this, it's conveying that sin is primarily behavioral. And as long as I behave, and I'm good. I don't really need much from God. And so what was it that, you know, and obviously as we, you know, talked with other adults and talked with you guys and other teenagers, like we were kind of probing underneath that and trying to communicate that sin is relational. And, and you also watched your father and I relate in ways that were sinful, that were damaging to each other and to you guys so you certainly had that and, and you had three little brothers and there were lots of you know <laughs> uh, yes. challenging relational situations that came along so how did um how did you experience that idea of relational sin and relational holiness that larry talks about in the context of community and how is that sort of brought into your awareness i guess yeah. Well, I think that when I was middle school, high school age, 
I think my understanding of it was mainly probably with my brothers, maybe a little bit with friends, but mainly with my brothers of like, you know, as the older sister and my, and they're much younger than me. So five, seven and 11 years younger. So I feel like I like somewhat rightfully felt, you know, much different than them most of the time and felt like I knew better than them, which was probably true some of the time. You know, I was still 13, but still a 13 year old has a little bit more street smarts than an eight year old. And so I think that um, it would have been really easy for me to just think, oh, you know, I'm in charge. And I think a refrain I heard a lot as a kid from you and dad was that I was not uh, the deputy mom and that I could not act. Uh, <laughs> I was not that person. And so I think that I kind of internalized that. While I had something to offer my brothers for sure, I also the way I did it was important and like what I communicated when I did it was important and like being kind and all of that was important. And, you know, I think that was a lesson learned over many years uh, through a variety of things. But I do think that I learned that like I could sin against them and, you know, not necessarily like, yeah, jumping off whatever insert random object here was a bad idea but me like screaming at them and telling they were stupid was also like not the right way to handle it and so I think that I think that kind of taught me that while like things aren't so black and white of just you know just because you were doing it to keep them safe doesn't mean you have the right to belittle them while you're doing it you know and so I think like learning to see those nuances through a lot of different ways was really helpful for me Um, and I think also like with my friends and stuff, I was able to see that like, you know, I could care for my friends and do certain things, but also, you know, it wasn't loving to them to not say anything if, you know, I don't know, they were doing something they shouldn't have been or whatever it was. And so I think I was able to learn a lot about how, how relating to people is messy and, you know, what one person experiences isn't necessarily what another person experiences. I think we talked about that a lot too when I was growing up was just like, okay, well, I didn't think I said anything mean, but they experienced it and they were hurt by what I said. And so whether my intention was to hurt that person or not, it's still what I said was hurtful. And so I have to deal with that and decide like, is that something I need to apologize for? Or Is that something that like we need to settle in some way? And until we settle that, then the relationship, there's some kind of brokenness there. And so I think I was able to kind of internalize that, you know, through all of those things. Yeah, I I really appreciate what you're saying. Um, The way Larry talks about this is like, do you ever ask people what your impact is on them? And Mm -hmm. that without that kind of self-awareness and that um, courage to ask someone how you really impact them, there's a lot that God wants to do in that revelation of what you just said. I might not have intended this to happen a certain way, but it is how I impacted you. And I need to take ownership of that and deal with that. Um, I think that then makes the need for the Holy Spirit that much greater because I can kind of control how I behave, but I don't have, and I I can control the things I say, but I don't necessarily have control on how that impacts you. And usually if I go another layer down, you know, there's something happening in me that is driving that insensitivity. Um, whether it's a subtle negative impact or a more overt one. Um, so that's yeah. that's a really good point. I like that. Um, so how does that help you? You mentioned your work with your students and, uh, you know, you deal with, gosh, I think you told me like your largest class is like 35 or 40 kids. Um, and how many students yep. do you deal with in the course of a whole whole day? Yeah, I have 210 kids on my roster. Okay, so that's a lot of relating. 
<laughs> with a yeah. lot of variability. And I know you have children yeah. who speak all kinds of languages and some who speak very little English. And so lots of different challenges in relating. But how does this, this, these ideas in this way of maybe communicating a little bit deeper, how does that impact your teaching and your um, relating with all of these students? Yeah, I think that for me, I think it starts with just the base assumption that every kid comes into my class with like a whole life, you know, like they have things going on at home, they have friendships, they have, you know, so many things happen throughout their day before they get to me in fifth period at 12 p.m., you know, and so that their actions don't necessarily like have to do directly with what I've seen, you know, like if they are choosing not to follow my instructions or choosing to talk to their friend or on their phone, um, you know, the, the things that add up in a day when there's 35 kids doing it all the time. I think the base assumption is just that, you know, it's probably not about me, you know, it might be, it might be about me, but a lot of the times it's not. And I think giving kids the benefit of the doubt is super important. And that's something we talk a lot about in like the program that I did for teacher preparedness. Also, just when you relate and see people for not only their behavior, but also like what's happening emotionally, what's happening at all these different levels of their heart, mm -hmm. then you can come into it and see that, okay, you know, them being disrespectful in this moment isn't necessarily because of something that I did or a response to me, but is because of something that's going on in their heart. And I get to choose my response to that. And as, especially as the adult in this space and one of the only emotionally regulated people, <laughs> that is on me to emotionally regulate myself when they're still learning how to emotionally regulate themselves and set up a space that will be most successful for them to not only learn, but to also thrive and know what's going on with themselves. And so I think for me, that impacts a lot of how I set up my classroom. Like, you know, I allow students to like take a break if they need it and, you know, have five minutes to get themselves together and then come back. I also like try really hard. I don't do this perfectly, but try really hard if I am going to discipline them, if there is something happening to take it out in the hallway and not do it in front of their peers. Because I do think, especially for 14 and 15 year olds, like most of what's happening is to impress or yeah. make someone think something about them. And so if I can take them out in the hallway and talk to them about it, a lot of times I'll get underneath of like, oh, so-and-so said this to me at lunch and now I'm upset about it. And so that's why I did this thing and, you know, whatever. And so I think just, you know, coming from that assumption and like seeing kids as whole humans, it's something that's really hard to do when there's 35 of them and one of me. And I don't have time to do that perfectly all the time. But I think when I can and to the best of my abilities, like putting that into my routines and procedures in my class and like what kids know they can and can't do and why um, just helps them to learn how to do those things. And, and kind of narrating too, like for myself, I mean, literally today, my seventh period made me very upset. And I told them, I said, I'm getting very frustrated with y'all right now. And it makes me want to yell at you. I don't want to yell at you though, because I know like it's not all of you in here that's making me frustrated. So I'm going to take a minute and I need you all to take a minute and think about, like, what can we do to make this day go better? Because if it goes like this, I'm just telling you, like, I am going to yell at you at some point. So I think also just learning that it's okay to be a person myself in the midst of that, too. Gosh, there's so much I could respond to in there. And what you just said that honestly delights my heart to hear you articulate some of these things. I loved what came out to me is that, you know, if we're if we're aware that God is not focused on our behavioral sin, but on our relational sin, we should extend that same grace to other people and not just judge their behavior, but take the time to be curious and and get underneath what's going on in them as a whole person. Like that's what Jesus would do. I really liked that. I liked the self-awareness that you have and the willingness to be vulnerable and what a what a great model that is for these kids who may not have another adult in their life that ever says, 
you know, I might, I'm about to make a mistake here, or I just made a mistake here, or I'm about to behave in a way that I don't want to, um, that actually models for them how to not only emotionally regulate, but how to relate well and honestly. Um, So there's a, there's a lot there in what you just said uh, that I really appreciate. And what, I think the question I was left with was, so, you know, you have some recollection of being the 13, 14, 15 year old who was, you know, impacted by adults struggling with these things, probably Mm -hmm. a whole array of things, certainly from me and your dad, uh, you know, good, bad, and ugly. Um, But now you're the adult being able to offer something I think that's probably pretty rare to most of your students. They probably don't experience that kind of thing a lot. What's that like for you to kind of be now the adult in the room modeling and pursuing these kids as much as you can, given the limitations of your situation? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's a big reason I wanted to become a teacher. I think that's like part of, why I felt called to this profession and why I felt like and why I think I find it very engaging and energizing is I I'm like 97% on the extrovert scale so I just enjoy relating to people um and I do come home exhausted some days many days uh 200 people is a lot to relate to in a day but I think that it's still um something that really like feeds me and really like you know uses my strengths well and challenges me every day there's not a day that goes by where I don't have to kind of think about like today on my car ride home I had to kind of talk myself off the ledge because they really made me mad today and I had to just kind of process like okay why am I feeling what I'm feeling how can I like it's not about them how can I just release it and the things that they did that that made me upset like okay I I just need to release that and like how do I do that in a healthy way. And so I think I think for me it's really uh, a use of a lot of the skills that I have been honing in that you and dad and Larry's materials and you know my friends in college all kind of helped me gain and helped me gain different perspectives and really learn what it means to relate to a very vast array of people um, and become and just be okay with the fact that I'm not going to do it perfectly all the time. I think that was something that like relating to people in college and relating in community and just being okay with saying, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry. I, I assumed this about what was happening and I was wrong. And I'm sorry that I hurt you when I, when I made that assumption. And so I think just like learning how to do that. I mean, in teaching, it happens so fast. Like, you know, I'm doing that a hundred times in a class period, but I think that it's something that on good days, I find really energizing. And on bad days, I think, reminds me of my need for God and his grace and, you know, his energy. Yeah. Again, lots of things I could respond to, but one thing I want to jump into a little bit is you mentioned how, and I think all of us can just imagine the sort of rapid fire relating that you have to do with 210 teenagers crossing your path you know, and probably then a myriad of other administrators and teachers, all sorts of things, and how, you know, you don't have the time to sit and reflect and be intentional. Like you're you're reacting out of mm-hmm. who you've become. And you talked about your community in college. And of course, you know, we've alluded to community um, before you went to college, but how that was a place where you were able to develop and form so that in this rapid fire kind of relating that you're doing now, you've got Mm -hmm. some wherewithal, you've got some pattern skills, just um, good habits, I guess. Um, Let's, can we talk a little bit about that community in college? And first of all, what, what you were thinking, what you kind of went to college um, in with, with the goals of community in mind and then how that played out both 
I want to be like really positive about your community because it's one of um, one of the things that dad and I are most thankful for is the group that you built and formed and helped to form in college. But then it was messy. Uh, it is messy. You know, as you said, relationships are messy. So can you talk a little bit about that and um, and maybe what that formation was like for you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think as a 18 year old going to college, I, I was coming from, I mean, that was like peak community group. So that was when community group was like 70 people every week and, you know, lots of people, lots of, and I was also a senior in high school. And so I feel like senior year is just when you kind of rule everything. And so I was just used to being the one who, organized everything and you know a lot of relationships ran through and all of that kind of stuff and so I think when I went to college I just uh really desired to meet people and be intentional and um form a community there of people who you know had different experiences than me but also who you know were all Christian and that kind of thing. And so when I went to Duke, the interesting thing about Duke is I feel like there's not um, a ton of Christians on campus in the same way like state schools or especially schools in the South have. And so most of the people in like community or um, Christian organizations are pretty committed to their faith. And so Mm -hmm. I think I immediately found some people like first week of school, my roommate included, um, who we're very like-minded to me and also just like, I don't know, we were all in a, I think 18 to 22, you're just like finding out who you are, separating from, you know, your family and kind of processing what happened to you for the first 18 years of your life when you're in a new place and things are different than what you're used to. And so I think that uh, we are just able to have a lot of really intentional conversations. As an 18-year-old, I had a lot of energy for sitting around in a circle and everyone talking about their life and things like that. Um, And I think because of Larry's materials, I was equipped with a lot of types of questions and how to probe at, you know, people's stories and be curious about more than just, you know, where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? What are you studying? And ask more deep questions about family and about feelings and about desires and um, those kind of things. And so I think because of some of those like trainings that I had in high school, uh, it allowed me to facilitate some of those conversations that might not have happened otherwise. I think also I had, I think also there was just a really unique group of people that God brought together. Mm-hmm who are really willing to engage deeply with themselves and with other people and be curious about themselves and other people and give a whole lot of grace to everyone because we were a bunch of 18-year-olds asking each other about really, like, for some people, really traumatic experiences. And none of us were licensed therapists or anything like that. And most of the people in the group have since gone to therapy, but we're not going to therapy as 18-year-olds. And so I think there was a lot of messy relating and all of that but I think everyone in our group was really starved to be known and to know other people and so I think in that desire we were able to just connect and and in the season of being in college we had a lot of time to devote to doing that and to knowing each other and to knowing ourselves and um And so I think that was really special. Um, And like you and dad, we were able to like go on some retreats and like learn about some of Larry's materials and get more training on things like that. And so I think through all of those different, both materials, but also just time for conversations that mattered all the time, all like... When I think back, I'm like, wow, how are we not literally so exhausted? We were talking about so much all the time. Something was always happening with someone, Um, which was really fun. It was a really cool season of life. So I don't know if that answered your question. 
Yeah, it gives me a lot to think about. But I think the phrase that stood out to me was you said, we were starved to know and be known. And I think that's the human condition. I think we all start there and and keep getting back to that place, right, as life happens. Um, and I think we, or I don't know, maybe it's just me. Like, I feel that, but I assume everybody else is doing all right, and they don't feel that same hunger or starvation. Um, so you mentioned just the ever-present curiosity that continued to energize your pursuit of people. That's one thing that uh, I really admire about you, Ivy, is you pursue people, and you're not looking for a lot in return. Like you're willing to keep pursuing even though you're not getting a lot of response, particularly people who are struggling in just, and are, and are using isolation sort of help themselves through the struggle. So I just watched you pursue hurting people a lot and with, with this sort of indefatigable energy like it never runs out and I so admire that because I text someone three or four times and that's kind of about the extent of what I have to offer so that's just a special gift that you have and I think God supplies the energy for um but I also think it's kind of driven by a curiosity you know something Larry would have called like a sacred or a holy curiosity that God puts in your heart for somebody and I agree with what you said that God sort of sovereignly assembled your group of friends in college. Um, but I think a lot of that happened because of this curiosity was in your heart and, and others in your group to keep pulling people in. And so now that you're, you're um, out of college and you don't have that same kind of environment that's so conducive to conversation and where you're all just proximate to each other and it's easy to find each other. Like what have been the struggles and how do you maintain that curiosity as you move into new communities and new seasons where, you know, it just structurally is, is, going to function differently and you have a different set of challenges yeah yeah that's something I feel like we've talked about with my friends from college and then also talked to some of our new friends here in Memphis um but it's really challenging to find that again I don't know how people it's like I don't know how people move all the time and like restart on community and just like being in your like mid to late 20s is just a tiring time because I feel like everyone just transitions a bunch, especially like specifically college educated people. Like you go to grad school or you go to a program or you do this and then a lot of people move back home or or they do, you know, multiple things in different places. And so it's also just really hard to find a community that stays and like people that stay when you don't have college where it's like you're stuck there for four years. And so I think like Jimmy and I, my husband has a, the blessing of, you know, having our teacher program, which is a four-year program. So we kind of are stuck with these people here for four years. And so I think that's like, I mean, that's a big reason I wanted to do this program was because I was like, look, people who I can count on for four years again, you know, and there is something really refreshing to that. I mean, I was just talking to two of my friends here that were like, oh yeah, my, our whole community group is moving next week. And all the friends I made are gone now because these are the relationships I've invested in the last two years and now they all moved in one week. So now I've got to start over. And I think that's just a common experience. Yeah. Even if you don't move, like everyone else is kind of moving in young adult groups and churches and stuff. And so it's really hard to pin people down to be in community. And I think like once people have kids and get a little older, people tend to settle more. But I think this stage specifically feels really challenging to like commit to. And I'm a very commit person. Like I think I've watched like I think just growing up in a space where we were just in a space for a really long time and with people for a really long time, like 
in my head, time is the thing that, you know, builds those and allows you to know someone deeply and allows you to do life with them. And at some point you have to commit to that or else you won't ever find true community because if you're constantly moving around for all this stuff, you're not going to be able to plant anywhere. And so I think for me at least, it feels like a choice of like, I want to be here and be present. And that doesn't necessarily mean I'll be here forever, but asking people to commit to, okay, what does this look like to be in community together where we are right now and in the season we're in right now and all of that. And so those are conversations that I feel like we are now being able to have with friends in Memphis. Like we are almost at year two in Memphis and we actually, this Sunday started yeah, I haven't told you this yet. We started a small group for our other teacher friends. Um, so there's like 10 of us yeah. meeting um, like bi-weekly and we're going to like have dinner. So me and Jimmy are making dinner and then we're going to talk about a subject or like something. We're, we're still figuring it out. Yeah. But try to do a community and just like talk about, okay, let's be intentional and like incorporate intentional time where we see and check in with each other. Um and so I think that's something that's like, even for me as someone who is really has a lot of energy and curiosity around people, it feels harder with a bigger group, but I think it's really important. And so just like seeing how can we start that in the small places and incorporate that in. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that with me. I feel kind of like a grandmother, you know, because... You're starting your own community group in your own house. That's that's kind of a cool thing. I know. That's so fun. I literally said that. I was like, wow, it feels full circle right now. <laughs> that's really that's really fantastic. I look forward to hearing how that goes and um, just seeing what God does with your willingness to offer and invite. I think that's um, beautiful. So that's really cool. Well, I wanted to just sort of transition this conversation a little bit more focused from community and Christian community to church, because I think when we start talking about church, that's a loaded word, especially in our current um, cultural moment. Um, yeah. A lot of people have had, you know, church hurt. We've been hurt at church from individuals or organizations. Um, we've certainly experienced that. Um, so I first want to just ask you to share a little bit about your experience at church growing up. And, you know, we had a few blips along that road. And then you went, found a great church in college. And then I know you have the whole the whole experience of finding a church in Memphis again, and you know, it's not an easy thing to do. So I just wanted to first kind of let you share a little bit about what church has meant to you, and then maybe close with just a couple of questions about what you're looking for in church in that stage of your life. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, if I were to summarize church, I feel like over my whole life, I feel like it's felt always like a place I mean I think it depends so I think I think growing up like k8 we went to one like pretty large church and I kind of liked it but I don't think I ever really felt super connected there I think there were people that I felt connected to but I think it was never really like my place I think when I went to high school we went to a smaller church and I think that was where I really felt like, known and like I got to know other people and I really loved that church and really loved the people in that church and at the end of high school there's a lot of drama in that church and that resulted in a break that I think was pretty painful for me and pretty confusing for me and yeah. um, I don't know how much you want to get into it but I think it resulted in a lot of the like leaders of that church rejecting you and dad and I was like 18 17 or 18 at that point and I think I felt very slighted because no one ever had any conversation with me and I felt like I was an adult practically at that point and I was very integrated into the church and because of all that happened with y'all I just kind of got outed too right as I was transitioning to college and so 
it kind of happened the summer before I went to college. And so then when I went to college and came back, I didn't come back to the church that had been my church home and had, I think, was really, really, really positive for me all of high school. And I think that was really confusing. It was a weird way to end because it coincided with my transition. And so I think it was a wound that definitely followed me into college. And then as I was trying to find a church in college, I think I just had a lot of fear around church leadership specifically and elders and men specifically who were supposed to be safe that didn't really feel safe and didn't really feel like they had the best interests of their congregants at heart. And so trusting new men that I didn't know, I think felt really challenging for me. Um, And I think in college, I found a really awesome church, but I also think in college, I wasn't really, because I had a Christian ministry, I think I received, like, I really went to church on Sunday morning. Yeah. But I was not really a part of the church outside of that. I think most of my like quote unquote church was at college, not so much at church. And so I think I wasn't really forced to deal with a lot of that until I graduated Mm -hmm. and then continue going to that church for a year, which was good. Um, But I think I just struggled to find community there and really – plug in beyond Sunday morning and kind of knowing some people. Um, And then I think in Memphis, Jimmy and I have kind of had a similar experience and it was COVID. So then there was the whole, like, no one's going to church and what even, and I think that just made us reevaluate. Like, what's the point of church? Why do we go to church? Like, why are we doing this? And then especially becoming a teacher also, like, I don't know, sitting there listening to someone talk for 50 minutes is just not the most efficacious way to learn anything. So, like, what's the point of going? Why Why are we doing this? And so I think a lot of those questions were kind of coming up for us in the COVID season and when it was just hard to go to church and awkward and felt weird. Um, and so then when we moved to Memphis in 2021, I think – finding a church. We went to two churches that had some of our friends uh, from the teacher program that we were in and our master's program. Um, But they just didn't really feel, I don't know. I think there's a couple of different reasons, but we just kind of hopped around for a little bit. Um, And now we found a church that we really like and are working on becoming uh, members of. But I think even still, it feels really challenging as someone who's married but doesn't have kids yet mm-hmm. to plug in because it feels like the people who are really involved generally all have kids. Like, it's a similar stage of life that I just think until you were at that stage of life, yeah. it's hard to connect to and it's hard to connect to people who are older than you because the pace of life is very different. Yeah. And so I think, I think church just feels difficult to trust and difficult to invest in. Um, when there are other options for Christian community, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, having shared some of your experiences um, that you described in high school, I also share some of your feelings about that and about church. And then you're right, COVID sort of, you know, upended everything. And I think created a lot of questions about why are we doing this this way? Why are we um, what, what are we really looking for in church? What do we really need from church? And so, and I think your your um, particular season of life is a place where most churches, I don't think, really have a lot to offer. I remember your being at your stage of life and um, and, and really not finding a good place to land in several churches. And we finally, God just, you know, put people in our lives who we still are, are in community, are, you know, still relate to even today, 30 years later. But what, given all of that, and maybe thinking outside the box a little bit, what could church be? What would a church offer that would draw you in this particular stage of life? Yeah, that's a good question. That's something... I've talked to some of my friends about. I think I think there's a mix of things. I think church for me, like what I'm looking for is 
I mean, I think it comes back to like knowing and being known. Like, I think that is something that you should be able to find in churches, like a place where you are known and where you get to know other people. I think also like being challenged in my faith and in like my experience, I think, I mean, I think transitioning to adulthood as a 25 year old, there is just a lot of change and a lot of like things. And so I think church is a really cool opportunity for multi-generational community in that and like connecting with people who have, you know, been there. Um, And I think can speak into like what God is doing in this season of my life. Um, But I also think that church like and specifically like I don't know I feel like church we usually think of like Sunday morning and I think Sunday morning like teaching is supposed to you know communicate and remind you of the truth and remind you of who God is and who he is like in your context and relating to you um and I think I think it's hard. This is something I've thought about a lot is like if a pastor, if like their way of preaching or their way of teaching or whatever doesn't speak to me, like is that a reason to go or not go to a church? Or if I, you know, don't necessarily agree theologically with everything, you know, is that a reason or not a reason? Or these types of things. And I think that's something that's really challenging to put my finger on of like, how to make those decisions. And um, and I think that also, like, you know, church is more than just Sunday morning. And I think getting into that is important, I guess. Yeah, I don't think there are any easy answers. Um, yeah. And there's all sorts of reasons why we make these decisions about where we go to church. Um, and I, so I, I don't think you're at all alone. Even, I don't even think this is peculiar to your season of life. Like I think we're all sort of wrestling with different aspects of what you just described. Um, if you had to articulate, I know I'm putting you on the spot here. So just, you know, do what you can. Offer what you what you feel mm. willing to offer. If you had to articulate what your ideal church would be, or some aspects of your ideal church, what what just first comes to mind? Hmm. I think for me, it would be a place where I think where we could like be open with where we are at and where we are coming into it and where people, I mean, I think the biggest thing for me is just like knowing people there. And I think that's hard to do without time, but I think just walking in and feeling safe and at home and at peace and, you know, a place where it's safe to not be okay. And it's a safe to, need one thing one week and a different thing the next week and to ask for that and to offer that to other people. And I think, you know, also just, I don't know, creating space to commune with God and like in what that looks like for different people and challenging each other to to do that. I think I don't know. That's a hard question. I don't know that I can fully answer that. I think it's easier to t- say what I don't yeah. like in church than it is to say what I would want in a church. Yeah. I think it's hard for me to imagine like a bigger church being that, you know, I think I've kind of figured out for myself that I really like a smaller place where it feels, you know, yeah. able, I'm able to like know everyone in the room or most people yeah. um, personally. But I think, Yeah. And also I think just like, I think I've learned about myself recently that I really don't like a pastor who just gets up there and tells me what to think. That is something that really bothers me. (laughs) I want to be thinking in church. If I'm not thinking and I'm just writing notes, then I probably didn't commune with God at all. Mm -hmm. And I didn't actually like learn anything from that except for that I need to 
you know, adhere to a certain way of acting. And that's something my personality is already prone to. So I think, you know, a place where I'm challenged and leave thinking and want to talk about it with people afterwards and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I think so. I'd, you know, love to hear your list of what you don't want at some point as well. But I think what struck me about the things you were describing, and I know I just sort of put you on the spot, but everything you talked about was relational. Like you didn't talk about the worship music. You didn't talk about the order of service or, you know, do we do this or that? And, um, which I think a lot of people spend a lot of time, um, focused on. And I think those relational characteristics and aspects that you described, um, are what we are all hungry for and wanting from church. And sometimes we find that in these other pockets of Christian community. But there's something about, and you talked about this earlier, about that commitment that goes with being a part of a church that sort of stabilizes and, you know, strengthens the community. It's hard to do that without church. So, um, gosh, I think that gives a lot, gives me a lot to think about and, uh, we're almost out of time. So I'd love to keep talking if we could, um, at some point, but thank you so much for giving me your time. I know you just finished a long, and it sounds like it was a particularly difficult day. So I'm very grateful that you would find the energy and the internal peace to be able to engage with me in this conversation. Um, I'm super proud of you and think that and think so highly of you and Jimmy and are so grateful for what God has done with you and through you. And I look forward to hearing more about your community group. That's, that's really awesome. Um, well, thank you everyone for joining us. I hope that uh, you've enjoyed our conversation. I pray that you guys can find a community I just like we're looking for where you can practice relational spirituality, where you're constantly reminded, just like Ivy said, you're constantly reminded that you belong to God and that as a result, you can become who he made you to be because of the infinite source of his love. And that enables you to be known what we're all starving for to be known and to know. So thank you, Ivy. Thank you everyone for joining us. We'll see you next time. If you like what you heard today, hit the like button just below. Then come back by subscribing to our podcast channel. For more resources on relational spirituality, go to our website at largerstory.com.